to Trinity Central. We exist to make God central to our lives and our world. You are listening to a recording of one of our Sunday messages. For more information, please go to trinitycentral.org. It's been such a joy to be with you again. Um, I'm sorry that you haven't got Andy. Andy's such a a great guy, got so much to give, but um, I'm thrilled that I'm here. And uh, it was a no-brainer when Andy last last Tuesday asked me if I could come. I made sure my diary was clear, but um, yeah, I'm here. So it's great to be with you. And uh, I'm going to be preaching this morning. I just want to say something about preaching and how we respond to it. Preaching is a vital part of church life. And when what we call the worship stops and the preaching starts, the worship doesn't stop because preaching is an incredible way of bringing the presence of God. And we have to use our minds, mix the word with faith. But I'm expectant that while I am actually preaching, God is going to touch people this morning. Now, when Paul went to a place called Lystra, as he was preaching Jesus, this lame man had the faith to be healed, and he was healed as Paul was preaching. And I just want to tell you a very quick story. Some time ago, I was preaching, I was a visiting preacher, and it was a Church of England, so it was quite a formal sort of church setting. And I was preaching from Ephesians chapter 1 on the power of God. And there are three power words in Ephesians 1 which uh, explore different aspects of of God's power. And I was talking about God's intrinsic power. He is powerful. And I'd been about seven or eight minutes into the talk when, and remember this is a fairly formal church, this lady got out of her seat and came and thrust her hand under my face and she was going like this. Well, it's not the kind of usual thing that happens when you're preaching, especially in an Anglican church. So I said to her, what, what is going on? What are you doing? I'm preaching. She said, look, look, look at my hand. So I said, well, come on, tell me what's going on. She said, well, as you were talking about the power of God, The power of God came on me. She said, my hand has been closed for 10 years. I had an industrial accident and I had an operation straight after and the tendons of my wrist were severed and there was no feeling between my wrist and my hand. My hand closed and my hand has been closed for 10 years. And I've got a lot of money in compensation for this accident. She said, but as you were preaching about the power of God, two fingers started to go like that. Wow. So I got on a roll then. So we started to speak to the hand. And within a few moments, her hand was going like this. I had... A phone call from the vicar of her church a few days later. He said, Phyllis has had that verified that it's a recreative miracle. 
She's also gone to the authorities to tell them that she doesn't need the compensation anymore. And they said, well, we haven't got any way of computing that or filtering that. Just keep the money. <laughs> so anyway, a couple of weeks later, the minister of the church phoned me again. He said, Phyllis is opening and closing her hand everywhere, everywhere <laughs> she goes. And it would have been quite a few years later, I was in a, a conference and a lady came up to me and she said, um, I don't know if you remember my mother, Phyllis. I said, Phyllis, with the hand. She said, yes. She said, she's still doing it. She's still going around telling everybody about what Jesus has done for her. Now, I hadn't intended to tell you that story, but as I was on the way here this morning, I just felt God say to me that as I preach today, both this morning and this evening, as I preach, God is going to touch people. So just be open to what the Holy Spirit is saying. What we have called this weekend or the conference yesterday, Pursuing His Presence, and we looked at the whole concept of the presence of God within his church. And this has been a theme that runs right the way through the scripture. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And uh, there's a kind of contemporary theological thought which relates that to the whole concept of temples, that temples are the dwelling place of God and that Eden was a temple. It was a place where God's presence was manifested. And then as uh, Adam and Eve sinned and the curse came and uh, the devastation came to the earth, the Old Testament particularly gives us some pictures of what that temple should be, the dwelling place should be, and this kind of recovery process that goes on, but culminates in the coming of Jesus and his establishment of the church. And we are now the temple of God. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says we are being built into a temple, a habitation of God in the spirit. And as I was explaining yesterday, the Greek word that Paul uses for temple there is the word naios, which is actually the same word in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, for the Holy of Holies. Now, we know that the Holy of Holies is the place where the Shekinah glory of God was manifested. So as we are being built into a temple together as the church, that is the place where God manifests his glory and manifests his presence. So it's not just that we are going to church, we are coming to meet with the living God. And we should have an expectation that when we come, we will engage with him that he will engage with us. Now, I hear people talking today about seeker-friendly services, you know, and, uh, you know, not being too overt about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, the Holy Spirit is the most seeker-sensitive person there is. Yeah. And when he is working, when he is working, we can expect people who don't know him to experience him. And it may be this morning that you are not yet a Christian. You may be here because you're seeking or somebody's brought you. What I would say to you, to you is look around, look at what's going on, listen to what I'm saying. 
and allow God to engage with you. You won't understand it all, but that doesn't matter. You can come in and experience the living God and find him. Actually, it's him who's finding you. Right at this moment, he is looking for you. So we're going to look in the Old Testament at some passages of scripture about this theme. And we're going to read, first of all, from Ezekiel and chapter 43 and just a few verses there. And then we're going to turn over to Ezekiel 47. Now, Ezekiel was living at a time when the people of God had been incredibly backslidden. They'd been living in disobedience to God. The temple doors had been closed. There was a, a lot of things happening, a lot of evil in the land that these kings who were supposed to be God's representative on, on the earth, his representative, um, many of them were in a, a terrible spiritual state. There were all kinds of terrible things going on, child sacrifice, gross evil, prostitution. It was a, an incredibly dark time. And God's judgment began to come on his people. And God was speaking to them through the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And he was speaking to them and telling them that if they didn't repent and turn, that, that God would judge them. Now, Ezekiel was actually taken as a prisoner of war into, uh, into Babylon. And uh, he was, in, in, in the book of Ezekiel where we read his prophecy, he was actually in this state of, he, he was like a, a contemporary prisoner of war, really. And God begins to speak to him and show him that the temple is going to be totally devastated, which happened in his lifetime, that the temple in Jerusalem would be broken down. Now, this was a terrible thing that would happen to the Jewish people because it was the place where God had manifested his glory. I don't know if you remember the story of Solomon when the temple was completed. And in those early chapters of Solomon, you see how the musicians and the singers and the worshipers all came together to give thanks that the temple had been completed. What happened was the glory of God came down in this cloud and so flooded the place that the musicians couldn't stand to minister. The glory was so strong. Wouldn't you like to be in a meeting like that? I have been, actually. It's amazing when it happens. The glory comes down. The musicians couldn't play. That was the normal experience or should have been the normal experience for the people of God, his glory filling the temple. But through these times of backsliding and drifting away from the word of God and uh, getting into all kinds of sinful things, the temple had become devastated. The doors had become closed. And now even the enemy, enemy nations were running amok and knocking it down, knocking down these precious stones and, uh, and just making it a place of derision and ruin. And Ezekiel is carted off and he is a prisoner of war. But God <coughs> begins to speak to him and gives him a vision. And this vision 
is of the temple being restored. So 43 in verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chiba Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, this was an incredible vision that Ezekiel was seeing in the Spirit. The physical temple lying in ruins, but Ezekiel seeing down to the ages to an era when the temple would be restored and the glory would come again. Now, as you read on from Ezekiel 43, you get more stuff about the temple. But that temple, as I've already said, is a picture of the church. It's God's purpose to fill the church with his glory. Now, I just want to say before God does any great thing in terms of revival, in moving out into nations, in hundreds of people getting saved, he will fill the church with his glory first. And it is from the womb of the church that the glory of God will spill out into the world. And this is what the next bit is about. So we go to 47, chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. I'm going to stop there and just say some things about this. So this water, now we'll see as we read on that there is a river be that begins to flow. This water that is flowing out of the temple, it says it is coming from the threshold. Or as some translations put it, it is coming from the altar. Now in the temple, the threshold or the altar was the place of sacrifice. It's the place where blood was shed. It's the place where the high priest would have pronounced forgiveness for the sins of the people because God had said, if the soul that sins, it shall die without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness from sin. And so there was this whole system of sacrifice that at the temple... The animal would be slain, the blood would be shed, and the fire would come down and consume the sacrifice. It's a picture of our salvation where we come under the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in response to that, the fire of the Holy Spirit burns within us. As Charles Wesley's great hymn says, the spirit answers to the blood. 
and tells me I am born of God. Now, this is a principle that runs right the way through the scripture. And we see in the time of Jesus when he came and we were looking at, at this yesterday, Jesus stands up and he makes a great statement. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John speaking about that says that Jesus was speaking about the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the glorification of Jesus is the sum total of everything that happened around Easter. But what I want to give that a particular focus before we go on and look at this river. We sang that wonderful old hymn the, the, this morning in that, you know, that cornerstone. It's a, it's a great old hymn. Um, and there's a verse in that hymn that we don't usually sing in the more contemporary version of it. And it goes, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he only is my strength and stay. And then the chorus goes on, Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Now, there is something very important about the oath and the covenant that is related to this sacrificial part of the temple. And the writer to the Hebrews comments it on it in Hebrews and chapter 6. And I'm just going to read that because it will help us to understand that the basis of believing that we can experience the presence of God and that the glory of God can fill his church and that this whole theme of temples that runs through the Bible is based on this very important passage of scripture in, Ephesians chapter, in Hebrews chapter 6 and it's verse 13. And it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So that hymn we sung this morning is based on that passage of scripture. Now let me just say some things about that and relate that to this passage in Ezekiel. This oath that God swore, it's a very strange concept, God swearing an oath. Where does that come from? Well, in the story of Abraham, God had given Abraham a promise that he would have a son and that he would father many nations and that through the seed of Abraham, the whole earth was going to be flooded with blessing. And actually, we are the result of that oath and that, that promise. Us being here today 
is all part of that. But it's much bigger than us because God said it would be as numberless as the sands on the seashore and as numberless as the stars in the galaxies. And it's very interesting that they didn't know then how many stars there were and even how many galaxies there were. So the Bible was ahead of its time. And God says to Abraham, you will have a son. He has the son. I'm sure many of you know the story. And then when the boy is 12 years old, God says to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to take him. I want you to put him on an altar and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, whatever is that all about? The promise for a son, the son eventually arrives and now God is saying, sacrifice him. So Abraham takes his son Isaac up the mountain, binds him to the altar, takes a knife and is just about to plummet the knife into the heart of the boy. When God says, Abraham, stop. And God looks down the centuries to a hill. He sees a son on an altar. He sees the flashing gleam of a Roman spear and he sees it in his own heart that this sacrifice has to be made. And he sees a reflection of his own father heart in this man who is so convinced that God will raise this boy from the dead because of the promise. And God says, you don't have to do it because I'm going to do it. And God swore an oath. Now, I don't know if you know that song, you know, with the line about God's love being reckless. It's a song that's caused a bit of controversy because is God reckless? I tell you, that is the most reckless and dramatic thing ever because what God is doing is staking his own reputation as God. He's saying, if I'm God, I will do it. If I am God, I will fulfill the promise. That is a reckless promise. It's a promise that comes out of the fact that God is sovereign. He will achieve his purpose. He will have a glorious church. He will have a people. He will flood his people with his glory. The knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Hallelujah. And it all comes because of the sacrifice of Calvary. And so that's where this river starts. It starts at the threshold. Now, there's an old worship song we used to sing, out from his wounded side, rivers of mercy are flowing. The water, the spirit, the flow of God comes from the fact that Jesus single-handedly on the cross won the victory. Hallelujah. And that's what is all implicit in, in this in this story, this vision that Ezekiel has. I love the way the Bible commentates on itself. There's this <coughs> glorious thread that runs through it. So let's go on with the river. <sighs> <laughs> Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. 
and led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. That's a great sentence. Everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of great, very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. <coughs> and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, encapsulated in all that vision is, in a sense, the whole of church history from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And I would love to have several weeks to unpack all that, but we haven't got that. So I'm going to try and do it in a few minutes. Okay, so the river is flowing from the throne, from the altar, and as it flows, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And Ezekiel is invited by the Spirit to step into the river and first ankles, then knees, then waist deep, and then he is swimming in the river. Now, many Bible expositors have given lots of different interpretations of, of that. And um, uh, in, in a sense, with the prophetic, you have to interpret the prophetic as, it, as God speaks to you with it. And there are many ways that we can illustrate that. But I want to give you a way of, of looking at, at this. First of all, this is a river that flows through church history starting at Pentecost. So after Calvary came Pentecost. And as the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, a church was established. The believers were built into a community. Now we can emphasize when it comes to the Holy Spirit, our personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And it does have that application and I will say more about that. And just to say, I'm going to continue with this tonight. So please come tonight and you, you'll, you'll get more of what this is about. But it's, it's a picture of the river of God flowing from Pentecost. And it has an eschatological dimension to it because there will come a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. 
Christianity is going to make world impact. Christianity is going to be a powerful force in the world. I believe before Jesus comes again, there will be a mighty, mighty revival that covers every nation. Jesus said one of the signs of the kingdom is that the gospel will be preached to all nations. That means every ethnic group. So you can say, well, does that mean that the whole world is going to be Christianized? No, it doesn't mean that. Because at the end of that passage that we've read, we've seen the river going into the sea, the sea becoming fruitful, a picture of the church, the river of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, bringing life, bringing healing, bringing deliverance, bringing fruitfulness. But we also see that there is salt, waste, devastation all around as well. And so we need to hold those two things in tension. Jesus said there will be wars and rumours of wars. Yes, there will be earthquakes and famines. Yes, there will be terrible things going on. But as he says to Isaiah, behold, darkness will cover the earth. Yes, it will. And it will until Jesus comes. But he says to us, arise, shine, your light has come. The two will go together and the light will outshine the darkness. There will be times when it will look like the darkness is prevailing, but the light is there. It will come. It will shine because the river is flowing. To mix the metaphors, the river is flowing. So it's a river that flows through church history. And as I say, it started at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was outpoured. Now we can look at Pentecost from the perspective of our personal experience of the Holy Spirit and we may well come back to that if we've got time. But I'm going to just turn to the early chapters of Acts for a moment and give this a perspective towards your gift day. Now I would not normally jump in and this would be a kind of much later point but because it's relevant and to where you are today I'm going to do that. The Holy Spirit did not just come for our personal blessing. He came to bring about community. He came to build people together. So that is why in the very early chapters of Acts, we see not just people getting saved, but people being built together. And so if we turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we have this first description of the spirit-filled community. And this is really what every church should look like. It's the prototype. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Wow. So the presence of God was there. It's a temple. It's a temple now. The glory of God is there. They're filled with awe. The spirit is present. It's as though Jesus hasn't left them, which he hasn't. The Spirit's there. And then it goes on to say, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any 
had need. So right at the beginning, you've got apostles doctrine and teaching. You've got breaking of bread. You've got signs, wonders and miracles, all things that we say a big hallelujah to. Great. God's with us. And giving. God had touched their purses. They were free to give. Now, it's important that we get this into the right perspective. You know, people talk about tithing. Is tithing New Testament? No. New Testament, it's all of it. <laughs> it's what you keep that God counts. God has given you your wage packet, your money, your possessions, and you are to steward it. And this is what this early church did. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants us to be poor. It doesn't mean that. God wants us to have abundance. He's a God of blessing. You know, we're, we're, Rosie and I are going to Cuba in three weeks' time. Somebody gave it to us as a gift for our 50th wedding anniversary. It's amazing. It's wonderful. We, I've always wanted to go to Cuba. Always wanted to go there. Now yeah, the cars the salsa and the music and the rum. I won't say the cigars. <laughs> I've always wanted to go there. I want to go there before the Americans ruin it. And, and we looked at it at the beginning of the year. We could not afford to do it. And we had a big gift day coming up and um, I'd set aside a figure and God said to me, I want you to double it. And I said to Rosie, I think we should double the amount. And uh, she said, yeah, I agree. And then uh, one of our young elders, Dan, preached a really hot word on giving. And in it, God said, I want you to double it again. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> Cuba's gone out the window. And somebody completely out of the blue, just uh, three months or so ago, phoned me and said, we want to give you a holiday to Cuba. Now, when you have dedicated all of your money to God and you live in the spirit and you listen to what he's saying, life becomes an incredible adventure. And sometimes you might be right on the edge, but God always shows up. Over the years, I've written probably well over 100 worship songs that have been published. They're not sung quite so much now because it's in a kind of musical genre that's a bit different. But it would be a couple of years ago, um, God spoke to me and Rosie about a gift day. And um, Nick is my financial advisor and he, he will know the background to this. My pension bottomed out in 2008 in the recession and I didn't get anything like the amount that I was supposed to get from, from the projected forecast. It bottomed out. Now I've got a pension, it's not huge. Um, but it's, a, but it's a pension. So Rosie and I, we have to be careful how we live. And uh, yeah, there have been times when God has really blessed us. Friends have, uh, ha, have just suddenly felt to give us money. But there was this time in this gift day, uh, this gift day was coming up and uh, God spoke to us to go way beyond what we had, to give beyond our means. And how are we going to do that? Well, we did it. And within a few days, 
I had an email from Integrity Publishing to say that I had never claimed my royalties for the last 10, 15 years or so from sales in America. And I had a check for 12,000 pounds. Praise God. <laughs> when you live in the spirit, okay, you can trust God with absolutely everything. And uh, I'm saying a bit more about this than I intended to, but I'm going to keep going with it and I'm going to conclude it uh, after this. And I, I, I believe that God has got a big work for this church. Yeah. God's hand is on this church and you need resources. You need finances to make it, to make it happen. I, I believe that if you are generous, some of you will receive the gift of giving. And if you receive the gift of giving, God will, God, God, God will bless you. There is a special gift to give. But some of us, we just have to make up our mind. We're going to do it as an act of faith. We'll just do it. God will bless you. Now, it's very interesting that the Jerusalem church here, they all gave and there was like a common purse. And they, they all gave, they all shared their possessions. You go into um, Acts 4, it was a bit different. They, they weren't using the common purse then. It was that they all gave out of their own means. So whatever method it is, whether a church has... Uh, has a common purse or whether it's all giving out, out, out of your, your own means. There is flexibility and there is also trust and faith in leadership. And so they laid their money at the apostles' feet. They didn't go back to the apostles asking for the accounts. They trusted the apostles. And I believe that it's important that we build that kind of trust relationally into each other. Now, of course, there has to be accountability. I know that, especially in the day in which we live. And some churches have gone way off course by misusing funds. We know that it gets in the press. But I believe this church here with the leadership here and in relationship with New Frontiers and Apostolic Cover and, uh, and also, you look a sensible bunch of people, to be honest. <laughs> There is a mutual accountability, and that is good. But I would encourage you to be in the flow of the Spirit for Gift Day and to believe God for it. And I'm going to conclude with this before we just open ourselves up to anything that God may want to do. And it is relevant to other aspects of what God can do. In Brighton, we went for a building in the church that I was in and leading with, with Terry Virgo. I was there for, right from the beginning of that, that, that church. We, we went for a building and um, it was, the cost of it was more than our church could afford. It was a big church, but we had loads of students who don't tend to have a lot of money. And we had gift day after gift day after gift day. And one of our elders had a prophecy about the gift days being like an anvil in which God forged our faith so that if, we could, if he could trust us, 
with earthly riches, we could trust him for miracles, signs and wonders. Now, it's not that you pay for the, your miracle. I'm not saying that. What I'm talking about is an attitude of the heart. That's what it's about. It's a complete trust in God. It's faith in him. It's believing that he's our father, that he loves us and he wants the best for us. And we so learned the lesson about giving and it was right through from the elders right down to the very smallest child. We got to the uh, 1999 and Terry led us into believing in faith for completing the cost on the building, which I think came to about 5.7 million in the end. 3.7 uh, in, in the end. And um, we were in 1999 and Terry challenged us as a church to believe God to pay off the debt by, by the millennium. So I think it was in the middle of the year, we needed 300,000. So we had a gift day and we were full of rejoicing because it was absolutely more than people could afford, but they gave. 300,000 came in. I thought, great, we've done it. A few weeks later, the elders were in prayer. We were before God and God spoke to us prophetically and said, give it all away. What, all of it? Yeah, all of it. 300,000 we gave to various Christian projects and blessed the city as well in ver various things. So we get to October and uh, we're pretty near the end of the year. So it's another gift day. Do you know the last check came in on the last day of the century that completed the whole deal? God never lets you down. And, you know, when you learn that with money, you also learn it with faith for healing. You learn it with faith for praying for people. You learn it prophetic, how to move in the prophetic. There is a direct relationship between our heart and the way we use our possessions and the way God blesses us. Not that he rewards us for what we do, that's legalism. It's all of grace. But when we live in the grace of God, it's one massive adventure. Hallelujah. Okay, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to say, come tonight and we will talk more about the, the way the Holy Spirit interacts with us and life in the Spirit and what that looks like and life in the church and what our expectation can be in terms of the Spirit moving into Vancouver wow. and into the nations. Amen.